Life is filled with challenges. Many of our challenges are great and some are very small. My guest today is Katie Doble. She's experienced a tremendous amount of challenge, which has created a tremendous amount of growth in her life. And those challenges are not behind her, much like they're not behind us. But Katie continues to live with the constant understanding that things may change at the drop of a dime. Today you will hear a story, a real story, of growing as change constantly ravages and thrives inside of a person. But you'll also hear a story of someone who's constantly working to overcome those challenges. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Katie Doble. All right, live from the downtown, Katie Doble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, what is your life like today? Well, it's different than it was when we first chatted a couple months ago, but no doubt. we are making do and trying to stay positive in light of all that's happening right now. Yeah, I think every podcast I have now starts off with kind of, where are you at? What's going on with your life with all these changes, you know? Yes. I keep telling myself so much good has come out of cancer. And mm-hmm. I that's kind of what's gotten me through everything is trying to find the silver linings. So we're trying to focus on gratitude and the things that we have to be grateful for and the good in our lives. So um, generally, we're doing okay. I had a moment yesterday where I was just acting really weird. And my husband was like, what's wrong with you? I was like, I literally think I'm losing my mind. What happened? <laughs> oh, I was just being goofy. And he's like, what's your deal? I'm like, I'm just kind of going stir crazy. So yeah, it's all good. <laughs> I'm sure but there's we, a lot of people having that, you know? Yes. We, um, we live on a golf course course that closed last year. So we have a huge plot of land that we can go walk around with our dog, which is very helpful right now. That's nice. So you know, how have you been? Good. Actually, really good. Um, I mean, I don't want to minimize what's going on, but um, I think there's, in our country, there's just so many different landscapes and geography and, and um, places that are really busy with people and places that are really remote. And I just happen to be in a very remote area. Mm-hmm. and uh, on the border of Canada and Washington State and uh, Blaine. So, um, you know, the beach is right next to my house and water and there's glaciers in the background. I mean, it's, it's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, and because it's such a slow lifestyle, um, generally it feels the same in many ways. Mm-hmm. But I really feel for people in these big metropolitan areas where their life has changed dramatically, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we're um, we're not New York, so it's not impact- impacting us like it is folks like that who live in buildings with a lot of people and depend on takeout for a lot of their meals. So we're trying to kind of minimize that right now and just anything we can do to keep our risk low, even though mm-hmm. I think well, we would be okay. 
Um, given my health circumstances, I've been told I am considered above average risk, but not majorly. So, um, but I still just kind of don't want to take any chances. So, yeah, well, speaking of that, you know, we had a really good conversation off air last time about your life and the whole thing. And I'm like, I wish I would have recorded that. That was a great (laughs) story. Like, but, uh, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to go back over that again, especially with, you know, the listeners. And I think they'll find it's a really interesting journey that you've been on, continue to be on, and that it will be a light for a lot of other people. Yeah. Well, thank you. Where would you like me to start? Let's start at the beginning, just like last time we talked okay. off air. <laughs> All right. Well, I was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska, and I'm the youngest of four. And I had a pretty sweet upbringing. I was raised, um, my mom stayed at home with the kids and my dad is a internist in Omaha and we had a pretty sweet life. And when I was about 13 years old, my mom went in for what was supposed to be a minor surgery to scope out some stomach issues she'd been experiencing. And when she awoke from anesthesia, she learned that she had cancer. So they ended up doing a full hysterectomy. She had pancreatic cancer and it had spread um, to her ovaries. And so that kind of rocked my world. It rocked all of our worlds. And we got her into treatment and I was 13 years old and I thought, well, she's my mom, so she's going to be fine because when you're that age, even at this age, you think your parents are invincible. So it was a scary time for us. And she ended up losing her battle to pancreatic cancer two years and two days after her initial diagnosis. So when she was um, first diagnosed, she beat it and was considered in remission, if I'm recalling correctly, after about a year and then six months later, it came back. So um, it was a very, very hard time in my life. And, um, I've always been a massive extrovert. I call myself a friend hoarder and I was sort of in my prime in, in high school. I had a lot of friends. And so I sort of, um, put on this, I'm fine mentality and I faked myself and everyone else out and I just stayed busy and I kind of did everything I could to avoid dealing with my loss and the pain that came with that. So I got through high school and when it was time to go to college, I decided the best thing for me to do for myself was to just get out of town. Um, Omaha is an amazing place and I loved growing up there, but I was always somebody's daughter or somebody's little sister. I have uh, two older sisters and one older brother. And then um, my dad remarried later on in high school And so I got two new bonus brothers and, um, I went away to college in St. Paul, Minnesota and had a wonderful time. It was a good, it was the best time of my life. And, um, finally learned to start a little bit of the healing process. Um, of course at that age, you don't know what that means or what it looks like until you look back on it, but, um, loved the twin cities, uh, got a, degree in marketing and started working in marketing um, up there. When my sister Julie got pregnant with her second kiddo, I knew that it was time to probably get moving to Denver, which is something that I had been wanting to do for a very long time. 
But unfortunately, in my mid-20s, I actually contracted an STD. So I had a serious boyfriend at the time, and through skin-to-skin contact as a virgin, I managed to pull, to pull that off. Right. Uh, so I was very... Um, I was very scared and I was very ashamed and, and everything that I went through with my mom, I had this amazing support system. And when I went through the warts, my biggest fear in life was anybody learning what I considered to be my dirty little secret. And so the guy I was with at the time and I, and maybe one or two girlfriends knew what was going on. It was genital warts. And the doctor said, you know, we'll treat it and it'll go away. And so the doctor treated it and two more popped up and then he treated those two and then four more popped up and it got so bad that I actually ended up having to have surgery on my lady parts to laser everything off because it was literally, I I couldn't even count how many I had. And it was such a lonely, isolating time and the, the shame and embarrassment were just absolutely debilitating. And I didn't know how I was going to get through it. And I understand now that I've done the work and I've finally (laughs) kind of wrapped my head around everything, that the warts were my body's way of saying, Katie, you haven't dealt with some of the things that you've faced in your life. And I truly believe that our bodies manifest things and they these diseases happen in our bodies as a reaction. I mean, sometimes it's environmental and sometimes it's genetic, but I think very often it is also um, your body's way of saying you need to face something or you need to deal with something. So I finally got the courage to break up with a boyfriend and move to Colorado to um, be the best aunt in the world. (laughs) Um, So I've two nephews from one sister. And then I also now have two nephews and a niece from my other sister who also lives out here. And that has been um, the best role I've ever played in my life. It's my favorite thing um, to be able to be there for these kids and be a part of their lives as they grow up. So I moved out here and I continued to do what I do in high school or do what I did in high school, which was to fake it and pretend like everything was okay. So I started hoarding friends in Denver and I became the social butterfly again. And I was in five sports leagues, I think at one point, and I was still dealing with these warts and dating had become impossible. And I had convinced myself that no man would ever love me again. And that I was completely damaged goods. So I um, found a really good doctor here, an amazing gynecologist, and I would go in and I'd see him. And almost every time I was sitting in his chair, sitting on the table in his office, I was crying. And I was just so kind of depressed and sad with what I was dealing with and frustrated beyond belief that these warts would not leave my body alone. Because again, most people who get them, they're treated and they, they just go away. So finally, one day I cried to my gynecologist and I, his name is Dr. Zarlingo. And I said, Dr. Z, this is all I ever think about. And I'm just convinced that no man is ever going to love me. And I, I don't know what to do. And he said, I'm going to give you the name and phone number of a very dear friend of mine. And I want you to promise me that you will go see her. 
So I took the phone number of a friend of his named John Marie Bros, and she is a therapist here in Denver. And I had never gone to therapy before. I went to a couple grief support groups groups in in Minnesota when I was in college, but I had never paid to go to therapy. And I sat on it for a while because I was scared for some reason of what that would mean. I think I was also scared of the cost. And, you know, I was, I think about 29 years old by the time I went to go see her. Um, so not necessarily rolling the dough yet. And, <laughs> rolling in um, the dough yet. <laughs> not yet. Um, not yet, no. And I had also just taken a huge pay cut at work. Uh, I switched careers and took a massive pay cut. And so I found myself one Saturday night doing what often happened on Saturday nights where I'd come home from a fun night out with friends and I'd lay in my bed in the fetal position and I would just cry. And I thought, okay, like I have to do something because I was just so broken. So I pulled up my laptop and I Googled this woman and she was from Nebraska or she had Nebraska ties of some sort. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take that as a sign. <laughs> we Nebraska folks stick together. And I, I reached out to her and about a week or two later, I found myself sinking in her chair and I went in thinking, okay, we're just going to talk about, you know, the warts and how we can get them to go away. Um, wow, I was so unprepared for what was about to happen. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to therapy, but it was I have. Tr- truly the, the greatest gift I ever gave myself. Um, and I had been concerned about the financial part of it. And right around that time, my grandparents owned land in Louisiana and my grandparents had been deceased for several years. And all of a sudden I get this check in the mail um, for this land that had sold and money had gone to the four children of my deceased grandparents. And so my mother's portion went, since she was deceased, to her four children. And it was just enough to cover the therapy. And I thought, okay, mom. I get it. <laughs> yep. And of course, at the root of the therapy, Darian was my mother. And it was it was just finally facing that that hole in my heart and facing that grief that I had experienced and um and learning how to to cope with it and to deal with it in a healthy way. And so I worked with John Marie for about four months. And we peeled back the layers and we dug into my relationships with my family and what it was like to lose my mom and all of these different areas of my life. And four months of therapy and the warts that clung to my body for four years finally disappeared for good. So that was a very valuable life lesson for me, as you can imagine. Um, And that was really the start of my healing journey. And I will tell anybody who will ever listen, no matter what it takes, if therapy is what you need, do it. And I think there are a lot of really great resources out there now that are far more affordable than they may have been in the past. And I know that insurance can oftentimes help in that area as well. So that was, um, it was amazing. I finally felt like myself again. I was still carrying around a lot of shame around what had happened. And I was still at this point where I didn't want to tell anyone. 
I slowly, as we moved away from being wart-free, um, I slowly started to talk to certain girlfriends about it. And when I had first been diagnosed, my doctor told me HPV affects 90% of the sexually active population your age. And as I started telling my girlfriends, I realized how accurate that statistic is. Because nine out of 10 girlfriends would say to me, I've had warts, or I have herpes, or yeah, I tested positive for HPV. And so I learned in sharing that power of vulnerability that you're really not alone in things when you think you are. And so um, it's something that I never, ever thought I would do, but I actually in time have um, become an advocate for sex education and um, and being able to talk about these things. So last year, Colorado was passing a bill called House Bill 1032, I believe. And I have a really good girlfriend who works in public health. And she and I were having dinner um, one night and we started talking about this bill. I had just heard about it. And she said to me, Katie, if you want a seat at the table, I can make sure that your voice is heard. And so last March, um, I went to the state capitol and testified to a group of senators in Colorado. And I told my story for the first time. And there were the, the purpose of this bill was to require that if your school has sex education in the curriculum, you must include comprehensive curriculum. So you must cover LGBTQ and consent and STDs and all forms of birth control. And so it was very controversial, as you can imagine. But I made the choice and I went on public record and talked about my STD and the bill passed um, and it was something that I was very proud of, very proud to be a part of that and to be a part of helping so that no other girl or boy is misguided in their education on, on this topic. Um, I was raised Catholic. And so my education, if you can call it that, was just don't do it, which I didn't. <laughs> right. I was a good girl. And, and then it still happened to me. And so... Um, that's something that I would love to to pursue and do more of um, if it's needed in any way, because it's something I think is really important. And I think it's something that not a lot of people are talking about. I think all of those topics under that umbrella, um, people are talking more about it. But from the STD perspective, I don't think there are a lot of people who are sharing their personal stories because there's still the stigma around it of shame and embarrassment and just keep your mouth shut because you don't want anyone to know that part about you. So, um, but do you have any questions at this point? I feel like I'm rambling. <laughs> I had somebody else do that on uh, this guy, George. He was like, you can ask questions if you want. I'm like, no, I know. I know. I said, you know, I know I've done this a lot. I'm like, yes. but you know what it is? It's uh, there's a real art to deep listening and, mm -hmm. To almost kind of the silence, yep. you know, on my end, it's, it sometimes creeps people out. I think a lot, they're like, <laughs> this guy said nothing. Like, he's just like, but it, I think for the listener, it's good for them to hear this long form uninterrupted by me, 
you know, your story yep. and take you on that. And uh, don't worry, I have questions, believe me. Okay. <laughs> I'm just one, I kind of know when I'm like, all right, I know when I'm going to interject. I'm like, it's not yet though. Okay. <laughs> really. Well, I will continue then. So the reason that I ended up getting the courage to share my story, part of it was just sharing in general to my friends and learning how common it was. But also a big part of it was I was diagnosed with cancer when I was 31 years old. So I was 29 years old when the warts finally left and dating had become easy again and life was just really good. I was on the top of my game at work and I had a lot of friends and my nephews and niece ruled my world. And then at 31 years old, I was driving to visit a client and I noticed this black line start dancing across my windshield. And I looked at my coworker who was riding in the car with me and I said, do you see that? And she said, no. And I would feel safer if I got to drive back to the office. So we go in and we meet with this very metrics-driven CMO of a huge company here in Colorado. And I am... I'm a warm, fuzzy person, and I try really hard to connect with people and figure out what we have in common. And I was just getting nothing from this woman, but I was also incredibly distracted. And I'm sitting there on the couch in her office, and I'm just looking around, and I'm noticing these floaters in my eyes. And I tapped my right shoulder with my right hand, and I could see it. And then I, and I don't know how what made me do this? But then I tapped my left shoulder to my, or my, my left hand to my left shoulder and I couldn't see it. So I noticed that my peripheral vision was cut off very, very faintly. And we left the office or we left the client's um, office and I called my ophthalmologist and they said, we want you to come in first thing tomorrow morning. So I've always had incredibly poor vision. Um, People who wear contacts would be like, oh, I'm so blind. I'm like a negative two and a half. Yeah. Um, I am currently a negative 11. Um, not to brag. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, I see, legit, look at me. What's that? You're like, look at me. Mine's way yeah. worse than yours. Oh, look at me. <laughs> like, if I don't have my glasses on, I don't know what gender you are looking at you. Standing oh, my gosh. Like, it's, it's, it's bad. Uh, but corrected with lenses, I can I can see perfectly fine. So I called my ophthalmologist and got in the next day. And I'm sitting there in his office and he tells me there's a bump on your retina. And it looks like it's probably a retina tear. And so we need you to go to a retina specialist, like ASAP, like today or tomorrow. And work was crazy. And I was speaking on a panel that afternoon and I thought, I said to him, can, can I go now? And they said, yeah, you can. And so they called and they got me in. And I drove to the retina specialist and I called my sister. And I said, I just want to let you know something's wrong with my left eye. And so she said, oh, Katie, like, what do you think it is? Well, our dad um, has macular degeneration. And he, has, he was diagnosed when he was about my age. So we thought maybe that's what was going on. So I go and I get sit with the retina specialist and I am told that I have ocular melanoma and I didn't even know for certain 
I thought melanoma was cancer, but you know, there's breast cancer and there's pancreatic cancer and there's lung cancer and there's all these cancers that are called the organ and the cancer. Yeah. <laughs> and melanoma is a little bit vague. And so I looked at him and I, I said, I'm sorry, like cancer. And he said, yes, you have a tumor in your eyeball. And I, my first question was, can this be life-threatening? And he said, it can be. Um, and then suddenly I just zoned out. I, I went into complete shock and he kept talking. And I said to him, I can see that you're talking to me, but I cannot hear a word you're saying right now. And so he said, I want you to come back this afternoon with somebody. We'll squeeze you in. We'll go over next steps then. So I called my sister again, crying this time. She's at my nephew Peter's kindergarten field day. And I told her, I said, I just got diagnosed with cancer. And so she said, I'm on my way. I'm going to drop Pete and Tommy off with our sister, Nikki. And I'm going to be there with you this afternoon. And my sister, Julie, is a nurse. Um, and so I just, I needed her to be able to interpret the medical speak. <laughs> Um, and that is advice I give to anyone who's getting a diagnosis at any time. Never go alone. And if you can have someone in your, if you have someone in your circle who has a medical expertise, it's so beneficial having somebody like that there because they they know the questions to ask and they can interpret the things that the doctor is saying. So my sister and I went back that afternoon, and we learned that if contained in the eyeball, ocular melanoma is not life-threatening, but if it does spread, it has a very, very high fatality rate and mm. it is incurable. And so we learned what our options were. So next steps were that I was going to get a scan, a full body scan to make sure that it wasn't anywhere else in my body. I was going to um, have what is called a <clears throat> radiation plaque therapy where they, on the back of your eyeball, they pull your eye out and they tuck mm into the back of your eyeball, they stitch it, um, this patch that has radiation seeds on it. And they anchor that to the back of your eyeball, put your eyeball back in and then cover you up with a lead patch for a week. And during that process, they were going to biopsy the tumor. So they were going to stick a needle in my eye and they were going to test the cells and determine the activity of the cells or the type of tumor that we were dealing with. And so it would either be a 1A, a 1B, or a 2. A 1A meant there was a less than 2% chance of metastatic disease, best case scenario. A 1B, I think it was a 25% chance of metastatic disease, and a 2 meant 50-50 chance that it, this was going to spread. Right. So um, we prepared. I was very calculated in how I shared the news because I didn't, um, I've never been one of those people who I'm a planner. So I want to share information when I know I have a plan and I can answer any questions that are going to get thrown at me. Um, and that's another piece of advice that I give to people who are faced with a cancer diagnosis. Um, one, you do you. And if your thing is to live stream it on Facebook as you go, that's okay. Um, but if you are a more controlled person, you're going to get hit with a lot of questions. And so you want to make sure that you're very calculated in how you share the information. So I set up a care. Actually, we didn't do a Karen Bridge site. We did a Facebook site this first go round. 
And what I did was I created a private Facebook page and I invited all of my supporters. And I asked them on the day I went in for radiation to wear an eye patch that day and to take a picture and to post it on this private Facebook wall um, to show their support and also to create awareness so that they could tell people, get your eyes checked. <laughs> and just because you have perfect vision doesn't mean this can't happen to you. So it is still important to go to the eye doctor once a year. And the scan, thankfully, showed that there were there was cancer nowhere else in my body. And so when I went in for to get the um, radiation anchored in me, I had to be awake for it because it's your eyeball. So that part was fun. And um, they biopsied the cells. So the week of radiation was obviously very, very tough. My best friend since first grade flew out from Ohio and she sat in the dark with me for four days watching Disney movies, just like old times. Right. <laughs> and, um, and then a week later I got the, I got the plaque therapy taken out and, um, and that was it. And then we waited and about two or three weeks later, I got the phone call from the doctor's office with the incredible news that the biopsy results had come in and that I was a 1A. And it was probably the best life high I have ever experienced. I was elated. I went out dancing with friends that night and I had this complete stranger walk up to me and she said, this is going to sound super creepy and weird, but you just look so happy. And I told her I am. I just became a cancer survivor and I am so happy. Welcome to the intermission of Dr. D's social network. How have you changed in the face of an ever-changing environment? As you're listening to this now, the world is very different than it's ever been. We're facing challenging times. The coronavirus is making us all rethink our connections with humanity. But as you've heard in the conversation I've had with Katie, our humanity is greatly tied to our feelings and how we go out there and tell our stories. What's your story? How have you changed? How have you helped someone else to grow through their pain? I urge you to think about that and enjoy the rest of the conversation with Katie. So that was June of 2013. And October of that year, I met an amazing man named Nick. And I met him on LinkedIn because I have ninja... <laughs> LinkedIn skills. Exactly. I did not intend to meet my husband on LinkedIn, but I did happen to. And um, we quickly fell in love. And this person that I'd been searching for for so long was finally placed in my life. And he was everything I was looking for. And I told him on our first networking event, because that was the intent when we met, that I told him about my eye. And I had told guys before and not really gotten a really great reaction. And Nick was totally unfazed. And when we left that night, we were walking down a really narrow footpath. 
and he grabbed my hand because he could tell I was struggling to see. And, um, and then he kissed me on the corner, but he says that I kissed him. Um, doesn't matter. Anyway, um, so we started dating and we dated for about a year and the only side effect or lasting effect of my plaque therapy treatment was that I did lose hundred percent vision in my left eye. And so in November of 2014, I went in for sort of a last try to see if they could regain vision in my eye. And at the end of the surgery, um, they took the bandages off and it didn't work. And so I was really kind of struggling with this, you know, coming to terms, knowing that forever I was 100% blind in my left eye. And a couple weeks later, still in November of 2014, I went in for my ultrasound of my liver. So the follow-up care for my situation was twice a year getting an ultrasound to my liver and having a chest x-ray because if it were to spread, that's where it likely would go. So a couple weeks later, I go in for my um, liver ultrasound and that afternoon I got a phone call from the oncologist herself and she said, Katie, I need you to call me back right away. So nobody wants that phone call, um, from the doctor. No. So I called her back, um, practically panting and she told me that they found about a dozen suspicious lesions on my liver and that it was likely that I fell into this 2% category and that I had developed stage four metastatic ocular melanoma that is incurable. And suddenly, not having vision in my left eye seemed like not the biggest deal at all. Um, and this was a really trying time for my family. We obviously, it was a trigger for us of uh, what had happened when my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, pancreatic cancer 22 years ago, they, it, it was not a good cancer to have. And I knew that this cancer that I was getting the diagnosis of was not a good cancer to have. One choice that I've made is that I have actually never once Googled ocular melanoma. I am very um, careful about what I see. I don't want to read the worst case scenario. I don't want to read the really shitty stats. Um, I am my own person. We are all unique individuals and I'm in this fight and I don't want to know I don't want to know anything. Um, and I know that I am falling into a very small percentage of people right now who are beating this, but I was also in the small percent of people who were going to get this. So I've decided that I have very interesting odds <laughs> in life. So, um, when I was diagnosed, it was sort of the mode for my family was to, to get me into treatment ASAP. And, uh, my dad who, it, like, like I said, is an internist. He's amazing. And he jumped right into action. And my stepmom surely said that he spent every waking moment that he wasn't at work on the phone, on the computer, trying to figure out the best treatment option. The doctor who diagnosed me told me that I would start Yervoy, which was the only FDA approved drug for my cancer at the time. It had a 15% survival rate. And when we said, what about clinical trials? Her response was, well, that would be really expensive. And thank God I had my dad because I don't know that if I hadn't had him, I would have known to explore other options because it's not easy navigating the medical landscape when 
when you don't understand it. So having my dad, I, I realize I am so lucky to have him to be able to make those phone calls and get on, you know, talk to doctors all over the country to figure out the best course of action. So in all, I it's been over five years since I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And the only statistic that I accidentally read once was that the average survival rate is five years. And I'm at five years and four months right now. Hmm. I have had, I've been in three clinical trials. The first clinical trial we did was based in New York City at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. I spent, I think it was nine weeks or five weeks. I think it was five weeks um, living in New York City the first five weeks of 2015. And then after that, at least once a month, I flew back to New York for what I called my drug deal to pick up my medication because it was a pill that I took orally every day. And then every other time that I was there, they would scam me. And during those trips, my husband and uh, my dad would come with me. One thing I forgot to mention, Nick proposed two days after my metastatic diagnosis. And it's something he'd been planning to do. And when my sisters asked him, what are you going to do? He said, it doesn't change anything. She's the same girl and I still want to marry her. So um, I hit the husband jackpot (laughs) and um, he has, he's just been amazing. He's been on board this whole time and um, we got engaged on Thanksgiving day. It was a very emotional day, obviously given what we were dealing with. And then for him to get down on one knee during that time was just the most romantic things he's ever done. Um, and so we decided to get me in treatment. And then as soon as we got me going in treatment, we would, we would plan our wedding. So we ended up getting married in February of 2015. We planned our wedding in six weeks. Um, it was family, immediate family only. And then we each invited four friends. Um, and when I look back on it now, I wouldn't change it for anything. It was just the perfect day. So I had that first clinical trial that lasted through August of 2015. Um, I ended up getting booted from that trial because I had growth in my tumors. And so what we don't know through all of this is, did that treatment not work at all? Or did it halt the growth of the tumors? Um, Because my biopsy six months prior, my liver, not my liver biopsy, my liver ultrasound six months prior was totally clean. So I went in six months from having a totally clean liver to having 12 lesions to having this treatment and then eight months later having a little bit of growth. So there's a lot that we don't know. After that trial, I ended up in a clinical trial here in Denver, Colorado, and I only lasted on that one treatment because I ended up getting really bad um, GI issues from that. And then after that, I had a liver embolization, which is a procedure where they inject 30 million radioactive beads to your liver. And thankfully, I've responded very, very well to that. We left half of my liver untreated so we could have the baseline for any treatments that we did moving forward. So I started my third clinical trial in June of 2016. And I think I lasted three months in that trial when the untreated side uh, side showed more growth. And then we went back and we treated the rest of the liver with the liver embolization because not only did I, did it stop the growth, it actually shrunk some tumors and some tumors disappeared. So I now have about five lesions on my liver and, um, and my liver has been stable since, 
2016. September 2016 is the last time I had treatment on my liver. Um, in 2018, I started presenting with stroke-like symptoms, and I basically woke up one morning feeling like a drunken sailor on a boat out in the middle of a storm. I couldn't walk straight. I was clipping door frames. Um, I felt like I weighed a ton. And the weeks prior, I had had five migraines in six weeks, which I never got migraines. And so I talked to my doctor and he ordered a brain MRI where they found something suspicious in my brain. And so I ended up having gamma knife to my brain in 2018 and my brain has been stable since. Um, so all things considered, I had been doing very, very well the last couple of years where I hadn't had treatment and life was a new normal. Nothing is going to ever be the same again, but, um, I feel like it's a better normal. And, um, I had scans. I get scans every three months. And so my scans last fall, unfortunately showed growth in three of my five tumors. And so there's a new therapy available called till therapy. That's similar to a bone marrow transplant where they extract the tumor from your liver they do something with it in a Petri dish and then they wipe your body out with chemo and then they re-inject the cells into your body. And it's highly effective and I'm considered an ideal candidate because I'm young and relatively health, healthy, all things considered. And so the game plan was to start me in this till therapy in January. And in December, I was supposed to have surgery to extract the tumor. They did a PET CT scan and the results were inconclusive. So the results showed that it didn't look like there was any uptake in my tumors, meaning they didn't appear to be active. So that was kind of confusing news. I wanted to be really excited, but I didn't know for sure what it meant. And they said, let's scan you again. So they scanned me again in three months. And so in February, I got scanned again and we had the same results. And so the doctors are actually now thinking that my tumors might not even be active and that the reason that they grew is because they're just scar tissue and they're expanding. So right now we're in a holding pattern, which um, someone said to me once, stable is the new cured. And that is my favorite phrase. I want it on a t-shirt. <laughs> Um, I will take stable. I will take holding pattern. I will take just getting scanned every three months. And so I'll get scanned again in three months. Given what's going on in the world right now, I'm not sure if this will happen or what the timing will look like. But my doctor mentioned potentially doing a liver biopsy, which is kind of invasive. Um, but it would be a way to actually get a sample of the tumor out of me and test it and see if it is, in fact, still active or not. And so that's kind of where we stand right now. Um, but I am just grateful to be alive and grateful to be, to have learned what I've learned from everything. I feel like cancer has made me, I feel like everything I've been through has made me a different person. But I feel like cancer, um, a friend of mine said once, it has a way of shoving a different lens on life. And it really does help me view things differently. And um I'm grateful for it. My dad and I spoke at the Colorado Cancer Coalition Symposium this last fall, and we gave the father-daughter doctor-patient perspective. And when we were practicing, he was shocked at the end when I talked about my gratitude for cancer. And he said, I, 
Like you just, you don't hear people say that. It's not something you expect. But for me, it's just opened my eyes and it's allowed me to, I think, be a kinder person and live life in a different way. And it's also just given me the courage to share my vulnerabilities and be more open about what happened with my STD um, because life is short and who cares? <laughs> but yeah. it you know, at 27 years old, I didn't have that perspective and now I do. And so I, I just think that it's, um, it's been a gift and it's been, it's allowed me to do things differently and become a better person and, um, finally love who I am. And what's interesting is, uh, here's the question part, just so you know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, one, thank you for telling that. Um, and uh, it was not rambling on. It's your story. It's it's what makes up where you've been and where you are. And I think it's going to be very powerful for a lot of people. So one, thank you for that. Uh, two, how do you feel telling that story? Like what do you currently feel when you talk, you, you kind of rewind that back and go through it? Um. So when I was little, I had this dream of being a motivational speaker I don't know why. And it, and I would always be like, well, what am I going to talk about? You know, cause I had this really great upbringing and really little adversity in my life. And I, my situation has caused me to reflect on my higher purpose. And so when I meditate, that's a big focus of my meditation is universe, please help me serve my higher purpose. And I feel like, I've been tried in these ways and I can either be pissed at the world or I can be negative about it, or I can just not tell anyone because I'm embarrassed or I can take what I've learned and I can try to spin it into something positive. And so for me, sharing my story is, it excites me. I want to show people that you can get through really, really hard times and one of the things I've noticed, and it's mostly with like my really close girlfriends, is that I feel like they they think they can never complain about anything to me. <laughs> and so they'll be right. like, well, I can't, I can't complain about my toddler getting me up in the middle of the night because you have cancer. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> we, all have, we all have things that challenge us. And, and they may seem trivial when you compare it to somebody else, or they may seem not important. But I think the important thing is, is to just share, to try to stay positive, but it's okay to get frustrated and it's okay to get upset. Um, just don't live in that zone, you know, like honor your yeah. emotions. And um, so does that answer your question? Yeah. No, okay. <laughs> no, I just wonder like how, you know, I've had a lot of people on here through almost a hundred episodes coming up a lot of people kind of bear their soul and tell their story. And mm -hmm. sometimes I wonder, like, how do they feel telling it? You know, I have some people that tell their story and clearly it's, it's very jarring for them to tell it and mm -hmm. it's hard for them to get through it. And um, so I, I'm just curious, like, how it makes them feel telling something that can be very emotional and really mm -hmm. difficult to talk about. And I think people are in different stages of telling their story where very some true. people you know, it's their first time telling their story to the public, you know, on my podcast. And some people, they kind of make the rounds pretty regularly telling other people about their stories. So it's, 
less emotional for them. They're just, they're very used to telling it, yeah. you know? So I think the stages of your storytelling of, of anybody's storytelling is very interesting because it kind of tells the story of the, where they're at in that and their yeah. fight or their healing and all of that, you know? I agree. So yeah. it's just, it's fascinating to me. I wanted to get back to that, the sex education aspect, because I think it's a topic that, you know, I've had different people talk about sexual health and things of that nature on here, but I wonder why the question sex education is, has been so incomplete in our country educationally for kids. Can you speak a little bit about that? That's a good question. Um, See, the good questions, they come after a while. <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, my personal opinion is it's just for some reason, it's something that we're not comfortable talking about as a society, even though it is literally the result of all of us being here. <laughs> like it's, exactly. it's the cause of all of us being here. It's so interesting to me that there's so much just kind of, it's just so taboo still when um, it's no secret that it's part of life. It is life. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I think that, and I think there's a lot of layers to it. I think that there's, you know, for procreation, but then there's also for pleasure. And mm -hmm. I think when you think of a school setting and you think of children, you think it's maybe inappropriate to talk about that piece of it. But I think that, that if that's a huge part of it, why are we not having that conversation? Um, so that as kids' bodies are changing, they're not thinking that something's wrong with them or that there's any shame or dirtiness and tied to their natural feelings that they're having. Um, and so I don't know. I know from a Catholic education perspective, that is obvious. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that that's still the case on sex education. It's really weird to me, though. It's kind of like, where are the kids going to get their information from? You know, and now we know that a lot of young people, special, especially millennial uh, generation, the generation Gen Z, you know, they're, they're getting their stuff from porn, you know, or they're getting it from their, you know, weird buddy or something, you know, it's like, wouldn't you want it kind of dictated in a very open, honest way and a good setting from knowledgeable adults who are going to treat it in the right way and, and not have, I mean, I remember when I had it in school, it was stupid. It was like really dumb. And everybody yeah. just made fun of it because it was a joke. It, it, it wasn't, it was just kind of like, here you go. Here's some perfunctory thing mm -hmm. for you to look at, look at. And I really think, we need to do a much better job in that and talking about STDs and talking about, um, you know, the various aspects of sexual health and wellness, um, mm -hmm. because it's well, something and, a whole bunch of people are doing, man, <laughs> you yeah. know, a bunch of people and having sex all the time, man. Absolutely. I don't think I m mentioned LGBTQ. That was a big part yeah, of the bill of course. as well. Um, I agree. And I, a lot of the people who were against this bill were saying, this conversation belongs at home. And I think this conversation belongs everywhere. But who are your I parents? Think, you know what I mean? Like is yeah. at home, like, you know, I know the people recognize that some people, you know, you don't, you're not, you don't choose who you're born to, you know, 
Mm-hmm. And you may be born to people who are like completely ill-equipped to talk to you about any of these things because they have major issues with it. Yep. I mean, at home, come on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, but I do think it's important for for both that the parents should be giving their perspective, that schools should be teaching as well so that kids are getting this information from more than one resource because one person may hear it more from their parents or one person may think I'm not, I'm, a, I'm a, I mean, my dad gave me the talk. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, Oh God. How was it that? Was, huh? It was, <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it's in my book. Um, because <laughs> You're like, read the book. Okay. <laughs> it's called, it's the, that title is called the birds and the bees and the STDs. Um, uh, but it really actually was amazing. I mean, he was very honest with me. I was 10 years old. Um, it's funny because when I told him about my STD, uh, we were in, we were seeing a doctor in New York city. It was 2017 and Nick was supposed to come with us, but Nick's flight was canceled. And I thought, this is my chance to tell my dad because I'm writing about my experience. I'm going to share it with the world. And I want to tell him this one-on-one. So we go out to dinner and of course it's New York. So these two guys sitting next to us were very intimately involved with this conversation. Because it's um, New York. That's funny. Because, <laughs> because New York, but they're, you know, they're speaking in German. So I'm like, I really hope they don't know what I'm uh, saying. Yeah. But I told my dad and I said, you know, you gave me the talk and he goes, I did. And I was like, Oh my God, dad, this is like, literally it was December 10th, 1992. Like I remember the day. I wanted to die and he doesn't even remember that he's the one who gave it to me. And we had this book and he made me read the book out loud. And so I get to the V word and I'm like, and he goes, it's vagina. And I'm like, I know the word dad. I just don't want to say it to you in front of you. So, um, but he did, you know, he, he's a doctor. So he went through all of the, the science behind it. But then he also talked to me, what he said to me was, Sex is a beautiful thing, and it's something you share with one person when you're married, and it's amazing. And so that's kind of like I clung to that. And and I think part of the reason that I waited so long to have sex was that my mom died, and I felt like that, that sex was the one piece of my innocence that I could control. And I just clung to that. Um, And so it wasn't for me, it wasn't necessarily a waiting until marriage choice, and that's not even what ended up happening. But it was a, it was something that I could control in a really uncertain time in my life. Right. Um, but if, but but nobody ever talked to me about STDs or that you could get that through skin to skin contact. Which duh, but at the time I thought I just didn't even think that. Now I know. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, spreading the word. <laughs> it's just oh, it's just good stuff to discuss. I think you know STDs and sex education. I mean, I think if we can be more responsible with all people and, and talking about that and, and just having more open, honest conversation with each other, I think is important. I think mm-hmm. like you, it's just weird. Like people, there's certain topics in our lives that we as a society deem that we can't discuss. And uh, I think it's damaging to mm-hmm. kind of put things in a box and go, well, there's a no fly zone here. Yeah. How do you learn if you, there's nobody's willing to talk to you about it? You know, like, how do you know, especially something that's not like sex is something that like, you know, every, somebody does like once in a long, long while as a society, like it's just weird ritual that happens twice a year or something like, yeah. 
you know, it's like happening every second of the day, every day, all around the world, constantly. Yeah. Maybe a lot right now. I know a uh, lot right you now. Know, There's going to be a, a spike in deliveries and divorces. December <laughs> babies, December divorces. Uh, yes. There'll be all these things. So it's like we we need to like have conversations. And, uh, you know, it's generational. And, you know, mm-hmm. you think about your parents and then your grandparents and all that. And, you know, what they were, you know, they were exposed to like, hey, we don't talk about this, you know, like, and and now I think I do think that you know, as the generations have passed, there there is more conversation, and it is certainly important to discuss you know gender, gender fluidity, and all these mm-hmm. things. And you know, so a person's growing up and they're not feeling like I feel different. Like nobody's acknowledging that I'm different, or they're yeah. making me feel weird about it. Like no, we need to discuss it, and be open about it. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially when you consider suicide rates tied to LGBTQ yeah. youth, because it's, if, if you're not acknowledging it, then, then there's that uncertainty and isolation, you know? Yeah, totally agree. And so I think it's, it's very admirable and it's wonderful that you have championed a lot of that um, because I don't always hear that from a lot of people. But mm-hmm. I also want to say this, you know, you are a fighter, you're amazing. And I, I love that you came on to tell your story. Like when you told it to me <clears throat> on the phone, I was like, oh, this would be great. It's just good for other people to hear somebody who's actually currently going through mm-hmm. difficult time. You know, a lot of people, they there's like this complete recovery or it happened 10 years ago or something. And that's still very powerful, but it's not often that somebody was like, well, I'm kind of in the thick of it still, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I'm just letting you know, this is where we're at <laughs> right now, you know? That's why I've adopted the term um, cancer survivor or cancer thriver, because yeah. um, I feel like I'm an STD survivor and I'm a cancer thriver. Um, and I, that word just resonates with me because I... Cause it's a part of my life. It's something that I think about and deal with, um, daily and it, and it affects the way that I live my life. And, um, and I try to just celebrate that and embrace it. And some days are easier than others, but generally speaking, we've, we're very just happy with life and all that we have to be grateful for. And Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing that you're telling your story. You're living through your story as we speak. Um, and that you're on a trajectory where, I mean, you kind of don't know where things go on a regular basis. And then you drop in coronavirus into this whole mix and you have a nice stew or a mix that you're dealing with, (laughs) you know? Yeah. We started this year, I was kind of having anxiety over like all that we had planned because we've got two brothers with destination weddings in May and June. Right. Um, and I kind of kept being like, Oh, it's going to be so crazy. And then this coronavirus was just a really good reminder that just take it one day at a time. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about plans. Just take it one day at a time. Well said. Things a good note to end on, you know, take it one day at a time for everybody listening We'll listen to this and you're going through a variety of things that you're going through health wise, emotionally, socially, 
now a coronavirus. Just take it one day at a time. Don't look too far ahead. Uh, try to spend quality time. Enjoy the things you're doing. Look at this as a time of change. Your life is a time of change. And thank you so much, Katie, for coming on. Really thank appreciate you for it. Thank having me, Darian. I appreciate it too. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.